Perhaps at this time you give careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, holy word. Psalm 50, Psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its set. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He falls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather me, my faithful ones, who may come to me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house, or goats from your bulls, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. And you sit and eat your pleas with them. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue and frames deceit. You sit and speak against your neighbor, against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, that I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, now I ask that you would open my lips to declare your praise and open all of our ears and hearts to be soft to your word. May your Holy Spirit be at work among us tonight by and with your word in our hearts. Quicken our faith and to equip us for obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a wonderful scene near the beginning of the Pilgrim's Progress uh, where the main character, Christian, is walking along a highway um, that is, it says, fenced in on either side with a wall, and the wall is called Salvation. Get this picture of that that narrow way of salvation with a wall on either side. And uh, this road has just led him past the cross, where you remember his burden um, rolls into the empty tomb that is by the way there. And as he goes on his way, he's rejoicing at losing his burden of sin uh, off of his back. Um, he, it says, uh, as, he, as he goes on from there, um, he spied when it says two men come tumbling over the wall. And the name of one was formalist, and the name of the other was, I bet some of you know it, hypocrisy. Formalist and hypocrisy, one of these great ba- pairs of characters from the Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, when Christian asks them about themselves, they say, we were born in the land of vainglory. And going for praise to Mount Zion. And it's interesting the way he puts that, because um, it doesn't say whose praise they're going for. Is it God's praise, or is it their own praise? Um, Christian asks them why they climbed over the wall instead of coming in by the gate. And they tell him, oh, we come from a place where we have, we have a custom, we have this tradition. We always uh, go over the wall because it's, it's just too long to go around uh, by the gate that you came in by. And besides, they say, what does it matter which way we get in? If we're in, we're in. They really say that. If we are in, we are in. And uh, Christian answers, I walk by the rule of my master. You walk by the rude working of your fancies. You are counted thieves already by the Lord of the way. You come in by yourselves without his direction, and you shall go out by yourselves without his mercy. And sure enough, that's what happens. You can read it for yourself. The end of Mr. Formalist and Mr. Hypocrisy. Formalism and hypocrisy. Formalism, we could say, is a a person giving all their attention to the outward practices of religion, religious behavior, without really giving attention to the inward reality of a living faith and love for God. That's formalism. And hypocrisy is closely related to that. It's saying one thing, but then doing another. It's hypocrisy. It's, It's living in a way that is at odds with the faith that you profess, what you claim to believe is right. Psalm 50, which has been read for us, has in its crosshairs uh, people in churches of every place and time who act just like those two men, trying to climb over the wall of salvation, taking the shortcuts of formalism and hypocrisy. And so it's an important warning to us tonight, this psalm is, in all of our churches here in this region, against this double pitfall. 
And it calls us to um, what the New Testament describes as the opposite, as a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ, that's what Paul says. And so I'm going to look at this psalm with you in three parts tonight. First is going to be a sovereign summons, verses 1 through 6. Second will be the foolishness of formalism, verses 7 to 15. And then finally, the heart of hypocrisy, verses 16 to 23. So a sovereign summons, the foolishness of formalism, and the heart of hypocrisy. Now, if you look at the psalm surrounding Psalm 50, Psalm 50 comes at the end of a series of uh, several psalms that all emphasize in one way or another the universal kingship of God. That God is the sovereign ruler, not just of Israel, but of every nation, of his entire creation. And Psalm 50 continues that theme, which starts uh, back in Psalm 46. And in fact, you could say that that theme of this series of several psalms kind of culminates here in Psalm 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. And that's a poetic way of saying everywhere, east to west, Everywhere, all over the earth, God's calling the entire creation to hear something very important that he is about to say. Now, that opening line is very striking, the way it uses uh, three different names of God in the Hebrew language. There's the name El, which translated the Mighty One here, although it's usually, in other places, just translated God. Um, Then there's Elohim after that, also meaning God, but emphasizing his majesty. And then finally, there's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, which we usually find uh, translated in English as the Lord in those small capital letters. And so it's El Elohim Adonai, or El Elohim Yahweh. Um, And so those three names are being combined, they're being piled one on top of the other in this uh, dramatic statement of who it is who is about to speak, giving all three of these names, announcing his power and his majesty and his authority as he calls his entire creation to attention. That's what he's about to say. Now notice that he is shining forth particularly, verse 2, out of Zion. So he's, he's the ruler of the whole earth, but his reign is concentrated where? It's concentrated in Zion, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is this epicenter. It's the place where God has made himself known in a special way. And now as he calls from Jerusalem to the entire world, he is coming down now, verse 3, in a special way, with a special display of his glory. Our God comes, it says. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. Now when you hear that imagery, when you hear about the fire, and the storm that accompany the coming of God. I hope that rings very familiar to you, because it's a common theme, common imagery that surrounds the coming of God throughout the Bible. But in particular, what do you think you should think of when when you hear tempest and fire? Well, I hope that primarily what stands out in your mind is Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. God's covenant that he made through Moses with the people of Israel there around the context of Exodus 20. There were thunders and lightnings, Exodus 19 says, and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
There's the thunders and lightnings. There's the tempest. And then it also says Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Tempest and fire there at Mount Sinai. That's how God presented himself to Israel when he gave them his holy law. Now, it's also an important context for understanding verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Well, that's also what happened at Mount Sinai after the giving of the Ten Commandments. What happened? The people offered sacrifices, very special sacrifices, or Moses read the law to them, and then they responded. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. A tremendous promise, that outlandish promise of the people of Israel. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And there's that very striking scene where Moses takes the blood of their sacrifices and throws half of it against the altar and half of it on the people themselves to seal that covenant commitment that the Lord has made to them, but that they have also just made with the Lord all that the Lord has spoken we will do. They were taking upon themselves the obligations of that covenant. They were saying, yes, we will be loyal to the Lord. And that's what verse 5 here is looking back upon those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. In fact, God is going to now judge his people, verse 6 goes on, and he's going to judge them on the basis of that covenant that he made with them at Sinai. He's going to evaluate, have they followed through on that lofty promise that they made? Is Israel now being faithful to that covenant commitment? And so here's the, the picture kind of rounded out for us. God's calling the entire creation uh, kind of to be an audience, to, to be witnesses in this cosmic courtroom where he is coming to confront his people. Israel is in focus, the center of his attention here, but he's calling the whole world to gather around to, witch, to witness, to watch this confrontation so what's happening is God is bringing to bear his universal authority, his sovereignty over everything. He's bringing it to bear on this uh, special relationship that he has with Israel, the very center of his plans, this covenant of grace with this one holy people. And that's the way that the Lord often reveals himself in the scriptures as the universal sovereign king who is particularly concentrating all that sovereign power in his covenant relationship with a special people at the center of it all. And usually, in general, that's good news for Israel. In this case, we're reminded, though, that that covenant relationship cuts two ways, doesn't it? Here we see Israel bearing the weight of that sovereign, universal God's unique scrutiny. His scrutiny, his searching, burning, holy gaze searching them, turning towards them to test them and to, and to convict them, to convict them of some ways that they badly need to change. And that brings us to the second section, which is the foolishness of formalism. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. Again, you can hear that courtroom language, testifying uh, which is pretty common in the Old Testament when God is holding Israel accountable to the terms of the covenant. I am God, your God. Well, there's another echo of Mount Sinai, isn't there? Because that's how the Ten Commandments begin. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and that's why you're supposed to have no other God before me and all the rest. 
The law is built on that relationship. It's built on who God is, who he is towards Israel, and what he has done for them. You're to obey me not just because I'm God in general, but because I'm your God, and because I'm your Redeemer, your Savior. That's why you're to obey me. Let's echo here. Now, as he gets into the, the correction that Israel needs, this rebuke, um, you, you could say he kind of gets into it kind of um, in a roundabout way. He starts by saying, first of all, let me tell you what I'm not here to rebuke you about. It's not what you think. Maybe you think that I've called you here because um, you need to brush up on the, the accuracy of your temple rituals. Maybe you think um, that I want you to kind of up the quantity or, or improve the quality of the kinds of sheep and bulls that you're bringing to the temple. And the Lord begins by saying, no. No, that's not what I am here to rebuke you about. That's, that is not the problem. He, you have to understand that the sacrifices, Israel, are not there in the law because I need them to be up to a certain standard to make me happy. The sacrifices are there because you need them. And as soon as you start thinking we're giving something to God that he needs from us, well, it's a very short step from there to thinking, therefore, God owes us something in return for those gifts. Of course, nothing could be more contrary to a real relationship with God as he's uh, called us to in the covenant. But the Lord says, well, listen, Israel, every beast of the forest is mine already. The cattle on a thousand hills, this vast wealth of the God who made and owns everything there is. There's nothing that doesn't belong to him. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. What this is teaching us about God is that God is absolutely, absolutely self-sufficient. That means he has everything that he needs without ever looking outside of himself to get anything that he might need. In fact, he needs nothing. He is sufficient in himself. He is, he is truly and absolutely independent of anyone else or anything else. He doesn't depend on anybody or anything to be who he is or to do what he does. Theologians have a term for this. It's called the aseity of God. It's kind of an uncommon one you might not have heard before. A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity. It means that God is this independence, this self-sufficiency of God. Our shared confession of faith puts it like this in chapter 2, and it says, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself. He's all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures with the acne. That is the God that we worship. A God who does not need us. That's a humbling God. It should be. It's supposed to be. Because see, some of God's people, in this case, had developed, it seems, a, a sort of distorted and overgrown understanding of why they were supposed to offer sacrifices to God at the temple. Um, if you start to think that God somehow feels a need, that God has this kind of ex 
existential longing. He just needs something from me. He needs me. He needs something that I can give to him. Well, what are you going to then focus on in your relationship with God? You're going to focus on giving God what he wants, which is these gifts, apparently, these, these tangible things that I can look at and I can say, look, I, I did that for God. And so now he will be pleased with me. Now he will be happy with me. Beloved, that's formalism. That's formalism. Think about it. Do you go to worship on a Sunday because you think that God needs your presence there? That he needs your praises? That he needs your prayers um, to, to fill him up in some way? As though that's what he kind of feeds off of. If not physically, then maybe in some way, kind of emotionally or something like that. That God needs people to worship him. It's not the kind of God that we worship. But when we think that way, we come to church and we, and we do church things because we feel like that's what God wants, that that's what God needs from us to be happy, for him to be happy with us. And so when we do that, we inevitably start focusing on outward things, those things we think God wants and needs. Um, which is things like just showing up and going through the order of worship and saying and singing and doing the right things one after the other at the right times. And then we go home and we feel content. We feel like we've done what we were supposed to do. We fulfilled our, our duty to the Lord. But the Lord is warning us here in this middle section of the psalm that that's not what worship is about at all. That's, that's not true worship. Worship is not about offering to the Lord a ritual that he needs in order to be happy with you. In verse 14, then, the Lord tells us what worship is about, what he is looking for from his people. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Can you show me thanksgiving? And you hold it in your hand or give it from one person to another. Can you take a picture of Thanksgiving? Not a Thanksgiving feast, that's something completely different. Thanksgiving itself. Gratitude. The gratitude of your heart. That inward attitude towards him. That's what the Lord is looking for from his people. And that's that will find outward expression in various ways, right? I mean, if there, if there were no as, outward aspects of our worship at all, if we just said, I'm just going to sit quietly and still and never go to church and just feel grateful in my heart, well, that, that would be a problem too, right? It would show we hadn't really understood gratitude. He does say right after that, perform your vows to the Most High, which is an outward expression of our gratitude to God, of our loyalty to him, our heart commitment to him. It's following through on what we've promised to the Lord that we will do. But why do we do that? Why do we fulfill those vows? Well, that obedience is the overflow of that gratitude. It's the overflow of our loyalty to the Lord himself, who is our God. Verse 15 is almost a little surprising as it continues this thought of what real worship is. Um, so absurd is the idea that we could ever give something to God that he needs from us, he actually flips it around. He turns us on our heads and he says, true worship, real worship, actually involves asking for things from God. Asking God to give us what we need. That's true worship. 
not the other way around, trying to give God stuff that he needs. True worship involves acknowledging and expressing in prayer our total, our utter dependence upon him. Sometimes people get a little bit confused about the different elements of a worship service, and they uh, think that, well, worship is what we're doing when we sing. That's the worship time. And then, uh, and then maybe also, I guess, in the opening prayer, there's like some aspects of praise to God. But then later, when the pastor does the pastoral prayer, let's say, um, he's asking God for things. So that's not really worship anymore. That's something different, right? Oh, yes, it is. Psalm 50 tells us that it is calling to God in the day of trouble is part of the true worship that he's looking for from his people. And why is that? It's because calling on God for help and for provision and for deliverance shows that we really believe that he's the only one who's able to help us and that we're counting on him to do it, that we are trusting him because we also believe that he is good. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. See, God's glory is going to shine out the most clearly, not when we give something to him, but when he gives everything to us. And when we receive that with faith, and with gratitude. I recently shared with our congregation a wonderful quote from John Calvin where he says, we must learn to expect and ask all things from God and thankfully ascribe to God whatever we receive. That's actually quite profound. What a way to live your life. Expecting everything from God and ascribing everything to God. That's what true worship is like. That's the worship of people that Jesus would call in John 4 the true worshipers that the Father is seeking who will worship him with their attention not bound to outward things, not bound to ritual and words and and outward uh, motions, but who will worship him in spirit and in truth with their hearts belonging to him and only to him that exclusive loyalty of true worship. Okay, so that is God's response to formalism in the middle section. At the end of the psalm, he turns to address the problem of hypocrisy. Uh, Commentators thinking about this psalm and its structure tend to think that the poetry would have us envision kind of two groups of people here. Um, I think we could say they, they might overlap in some ways, and there's aspects which we need to hear from this entire psalm, everything that it says, and be convicted by it. But the poetry is kind of presenting us with two groups of people, and Paul uh, that, uh, and God is turning from the one group of the formalism to this other group, who he names the wicked. The wicked. What right have you, he says, to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Okay, so these are people who claim to be covenant keepers. They take God's uh, covenant on their lips. But their lives show that they don't really care about God's law at all. They maybe want the benefits of the covenant, or they want to be seen as people who are part of the covenant, but they don't care about the covenant itself and actually living in a way that's loyal to the God of the covenant. So when God's word then comes in to correct them and to call them to a different way that they ought to be living, they don't want to hear that at all. They won't listen. They just ignore it. They won't listen to correction. Uh, notice how verses 18 to 20 then 
um, allude to several of the Ten Commandments themselves. All in a row here. There's the eighth and the seventh in verse 18, stealing and adultery. Uh, The ninth commandment is there in verses 19 and 20, false witness. So once again, like it was earlier in the psalm, Sinai is still in the background here. That place of the covenant-making, foundational covenant-making between God and Israel through Moses. And the Lord's saying, not only have you not obeyed that covenant at Sinai, not only have you not kept those Ten Commandments, you have shown that you don't even care about that covenant. You don't care about the commandments. You've embraced, in fact, the opposite of them. You've embraced the opposite of God's righteous standard in your thoughts and your choices and your relationships and the way that you talk. Everything about you screams the opposite of the covenant. Now we saw that the fundamental problem with formalism turned out to be a distorted view of God. Thinking that God needs our outward service in order to be happy with us. Interestingly, in verse 21, what do you see is the heart of hypocrisy? The heart of hypocrisy is likewise a distorted view of God. See, this is why theology matters. Theology, theology can be one of these outward things that we try to offer to God and getting our doctrinal ducks in a row. It can be a form of formalism. For, especially for people who are kind of inclined that way. Theology, true knowledge of God, according to the scriptures, this is why it matters, why it's intensely practical and not just theoretical, not just something to play with and argue about. Knowing God, that's what theology is about, that's what theology means. Knowing who he is, understanding his nature, understanding his character, understanding his attributes, Because you see, it's by knowing God that we learn how to live. It's because we see what he's really like and what he's really after from us because we know him. The problem with these hypocrites who say they're covenant people but they live the opposite way is that they don't know God. They don't know what he's really like. You thought, God says, that I was one like yourself. You've tried to make me in your own image. You've come up with a version of God who who doesn't really mind if you kind of bend and, and, and break his law, who will just approve of you anyway. And because the God that you've created is a God um, who matches the kind of person you are and the kinds of inclination desire and inclinations and desires that you have to substitute God. You thought that I was one like yourself. Of course, what does God say about himself elsewhere in the Old Testament? Think of Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. So once again, the second group, too, needs to repent. Like the first group. In the case of of these hypocrites, the warning is more severe. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. But really, it's a fundamental solution. What both of these groups really need remains the same in principle. It is that sacrifice of thanksgiving. It is that heart of gratitude, of utter dependence on the Lord, and really gratitude towards the Lord, that together 
lead to that kind of loyalty and love for God that's not defined by our outward activities or the words that we say. It is defined by something inward. Whatever we do outwardly is the obedient overflow of a heart that is devoted to him. I think that all of us sinners gathered here in all of our churches, we all have a little bit of Mr. Formalist and Mr. Hypocrisy lurking in our hearts and coming to expression from time to time in our churches. There are some protections, there are some guardrails against this when you're part of a a Reformed church, frankly, that takes uh, biblical worship seriously. The Reformation happened for a reason, right? It happened to warn God's people against that kind of preoccupation with ritual and outward pomp and circumstance that had just taken over so much of the church's life during the Middle Ages. And our worship is more plain, it's more simple, it's it's focused on the word of God. And that is not because it's our preference, just because we're kind of inclined that way, it's because it's biblical. And it's a guard against formalism. It's a good thing, and you should be thankful for the church that the Lord has placed you in. It is a guard against formalism, but let me tell you, folks, it is not a guarantee against formalism. And all of us are tempted to fall into that sleepy carelessness where we're content just to show up and mouth the words and sit there and then go home with hearts closed to the substance of the glory of God and the wonder of his grace to us in Jesus Christ, that are being so richly served up to us week in and week out. Our hearts can grow so callous. And it's not just formalism, it's hypocrisy too. Hypocrisy is one of the greatest, if not the greatest danger for professing Christians. We are so indignant, so indignant at the evils in the world outside the walls of the church and yet how calloused once again our hearts can be against our own anger against our own greed our own lusts our own fearfulness and worry we indulge in and nurture and treasure don't want to give up don't even see his problems anymore how often our lives fall so far short of the faith that we profess The things we say we think are right. How often do we find ourselves coming up so far short of that lofty promise of Israel that all that the Lord has spoken we will do. promise mocks us. When we look at what our lives are really like. You see, beloved, that's exactly why we need the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one, isn't he, who, who perfectly worshipped his Father without formalism and without hypocrisy. In spirit and in truth throughout his life, always uncorrupted by these things. A perfect sincerity and a perfect integrity. That is the heart of the Lord Jesus in worship of his Father. You can't find those things in yourself can find them in Jesus. And what we see on the cross is that on the cross, Jesus became 
the, the sacrifice that all of these bulls and sheep that, that the Lord is really downplaying in this psalm, the Lord is downplaying them because they were not the main attraction. They were not the real thing. They were pointing beyond themselves. They were just pictures of that one great sacrifice that we really need, not a sacrifice that we have ever offered to God. It's the sacrifice that God offered from his free grace, a sacrifice we never could have given, but God gave it for us, a life of his only beloved son. It is humbling and amazing to think that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our company. He doesn't need our fellowship. He doesn't need our approval, certainly. He doesn't need our giving. He doesn't need our service. He owns everything there is because he made everything there is, and so we can never stand in need of anything we could offer him. The blessing flows all the other way from him down to us. He needs nothing. We needed everything. So that's exactly what he gave. He gave himself. He took our nature. He entered our world. He bore our sorrows. He took our curse on himself so that we could have life. And so verse 23 concludes, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show what? I will show the salvation of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly what God has shown us in the Lord Jesus. And so now, in response, it is our joyful duty to return to him that sacrifice of gratitude. Offering not something, but offering ourselves wholly and completely without reservation to him in loyalty and love, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. And because we're his already, we belong to him because of all that he has so freely given to us through Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this psalm. We thank you that you do not need us. We like to feel needed And yet, Lord, we're so thankful that we serve a God who does not depend on us for anything. And rather, Lord, we freely acknowledge that we depend on you for everything. We thank you that you have given us all there was to give by giving us your son. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.